welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Today we hear from a hero who has spent decades on the front line saving lives and fighting to promote a plant that can help people struggling with heroin and other addictions. You might have heard of the iboga plant before, the African shrub whose roots contain the molecule ibogaine. And you might have heard that the ibogaine molecule has been widely reported anecdotally to interrupt the withdrawal from opiates, as well as enabling a long psychedelic trip that often helps people remember why they want to stop using. People in the addiction and plant medicine world often know more about Howard Lutzoff and his wife Norma, who are a very public face of that fight. But today's guest, Richie Ogolnik, is one of the unsung heroes of the movement. When he found out about Iboga, he headed to Cameroon to try and learn more. With an almost improbable success story, he found someone to help him, and then he returned to the States where, as one anarchist hero told me, Richie became instrumental in teaching people about how to use this plant medicine and spreading knowledge about it around the world. He'll explain much more in depth about the iboga plant and the ibogaine molecule in the show. But if you want to learn more, Richie said feel free to contact him with your questions. And of course, there's a lot of resources on the internet. Personally, I'd recommend the movie I'm Dangerous with Love about my friend Dimitri Mugianis. But for right now, I hope you'll enjoy hearing Richie's escapades fighting for a plant more relevant today than ever. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I'm very pleased to have someone on the show that's been doing a lot of great work over the years to advance something really important, I think, uh, the plant medicine Ibogaine. His name is Richie Ogolnik, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Um, and maybe just to start, if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background before we dive into the, the plant medicine and how you found it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was um, a jeweler um, for about 21 years um, until I was introduced to Ibogaine. I received a phone call uh, from uh, a person who I met on the streets of New York while he was selling his wife's earrings and I was selling my rings um, on the corner of uh, 72nd Street and Broadway. And um, he shared with me some information about an extract, uh, alkaloid, located from a West African shrub called Ibogaine. And he said to me, um, have you ever heard about this? Uh, he had a, a personal interest in it because he was um, an alcoholic. And he heard that there was one person uh, out of the West um, that was doing treatments in hotel rooms in Amsterdam for usually fifteen dollars to $18,000 a treatment. And I immediately, um, upon arriving back in Gainesville, Florida, where I live, walked to the Herbarian Library and came across a one-page article about a small corporation located in Staten Island uh, called NDA, um, uh, uh, fathered by a person by the name of Howard Lotsoff. And I received a packet of information from Howard, uh, this was before we all had computers, this was in 
1989, and um, was astounded to read these subjective testimonials from ex-addicts who literally were reset to a predictive state within 36 hours upon taking this granddaddy of them all, psychoactives. Um, it's a three-stage process that doesn't go on like all the other psychoactives do from like six to 12 hours uh, uh, as a trip, but it's more like a three-day process and a deep 36-hour self-reflective period. But the other thing that it does is it eliminates all the symptoms of withdrawal from opiates and eliminates the craving because there's a metabolite that fills up the opiate, the alcohol, the nicotine receptor sites that literally basically brings a person to a pre-addictive state. Of course, people are still holding some of the baggage that brought them to the addictive process in the first place, and there's still work to be done, but it's this incredible few-month window of time when it's as if they've gone through a year and a half of of just living and their biochemistry being rewired to a pre-addictive state literally overnight. And here, here I read about this and I just didn't understand why it wasn't being made available to masses of people very inexpensively. So it took me a couple of years to gather up a few thousand dollars and uh, a mosquito net and uh, a sleeping bag and I headed off to Cameroon, Africa, um, where I thought that I would end up having to go into the rainforest and the pygmies would, you know, look through me and around me and, and uh, perhaps they would choose me to be the harborer of Ibogaine to the world. Um, but as it turned out, I didn't know where to go in Cameroon. So I went to a university and I knocked on uh, the door of an organic chemistry department and this six foot five guy answered and I asked him, well, I'm from the Bronx. Do you know anything about Ibogaine? And he looked at me and he said, like, God will strike me down if I don't work with you. I'm probably the only chemist on the continent of Africa that has spent the last year and a half perfecting the extraction method. And he practically carried me to uh, an old wooden chest and he, opens it up and he takes out a vial of white powder which said 13 grams of ibogaine hydrochloride on it. And uh, essentially I gave him $4,000 and he gave me 13 grams and he told me I owe him $9,000. So come back as soon as you can um, after you've done some treatments with it. So I, I flew back um, underground and... Um, created a name for myself, Eric Taub, T-A-U-B, which has been you know, known in the Ibogaine world during the last 24 years. Um, and I began immediately to do treatments. And in fact, um, I don't know if any of you remember, but um, there was uh, an actor that died in front of uh, an L.A. Um, club by the name of River Phoenix, and his family and he were brought up and raised <clears throat> in Gainesville, Florida. And so I ended up 13 days after he overdosed, 
uh, doing a treatment with one of his dearest friends. And that kind of propelled me to move away from the jewelry and put all my time into Ibogaine. And basically during the first three months of being home, I spent a thousand dollars a month on phone bills back in 1993. And, um, and, uh, about 12 hours a day for three months calling everyone I knew and publishing an article. And then people began to come from all over the world because I was the only one that was having it available. People came from Australia, from different parts of the world, mostly non-addicts coming for psycho-spiritual and therapeutic intentions initially. But as the years went on, more and more addicts began to come. And I, I did uh, myself with the help of people that I trained, which was absolutely vital because it was really challenging for me to do one-on-one treatments. But as, as addicts came and as doctors uh, heard about it, I trained addicts and paraclinicians and, and doctors to do the work, and they opened up centers in Mexico and Central America and in other parts of the world. Um, so now it's in about 35 countries, and there's probably about 200 or so active Ibogaine uh, providers in the world. Wow, because someone from the Bronx went to Cameroon. (laughs) Never camped out before, basically, and uh, I didn't know where to go, but it found me. (laughs) Um, And before I ask about the treatments themselves, just a clarification. So iboga is the actual plant, and then ibogaine is the active ingredient. So it's a little bit like ayahuasca is the plant and DMT is the active ingredient. That's right. Ibogaine is uh, one of the 23 alkaloids located in the plant. Now, there is another alkaloid located in Tabernati iboga called ibogamine, which is actually more powerful than ibogaine, but it's in very, very small quantities. And there is one chemist, a friend of mine, who um, was in a kitchen at a friend's house in France for a few months learning how to extract from the root bar, extract ibogaine. He came across ibogamine and uh, some years later actually isolated it and tried it. And it was a very, very powerful substance, but very challenging to isolate. But ibogaine, yes, ibogaine is the active ingredient located in the root bark shavings. Um, It's actually, there's three or four different layers of the shape of the the layers of of the root bark, the bark. And interestingly, the middle layer is the one that has the most significant part of ibogaine. Huh, that's that's interesting. Um, and so it's been it's been thousands of years of use in Africa, and only now are some Westerners starting to learn from what has been happening there for a long time. Right. Well, it, it appears as though there are, were tribes, nomadic tribes, that came from further east in Africa. Some people believe, you know, there's a school of thought that says that. I began was probably uh, contributing to catapulting uh, the, the beginning of the human race into a, a condition of self-awareness, the way Terence McKenna mentions um, 
uh, mushrooms as doing that as well um, in the Rift Valley. And people came, and it was only three or 400 years ago that West Central Africa began to cultivate it, and the tribes people began to use it as their, you know, rite of passage initiatory tool. But it's been actually in the in the West for a hundred or so years. Um, initially, it was given in small doses as a mood elevator and and uh, and a couple of other effects in France over the counter um, in pharmacies. And I've understood that since the 1970s, it's been located underground as a psychotherapeutic, as a directive therapeutic tool um, uh, in the, the Bay Area, like a very quiet underground group for a few generations have been using it. In fact, they got in touch with me about 15, 20 years ago when they ran out of their contact for supply and I was supplying them for a few years. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's been around, but it's been very, very quiet. And during the last 24, 25 years, we've probably reached about 18,000 people worldwide with IPK. So it's not reaching a lot of people. And my intention when I initially went to Africa was to find a home remedy where we could make like this quantitative large impact on people. In other words, I wanted to reach a million people. I wanted to, to pick up, you know, 40,000 doses from the, the, the pygmies for three cents each, go to Needle Park in Europe, call CNN, and, you know, one quarter of the people would show up for their free needles the following week, and that would be the end of my messianic complex. Um, but it didn't work out that way with one gram costing initially $1,000 and it being a class controlled substance in the United States, it's been very challenging. Um, and it's really just for really a few people, just the kind of person that's willing to go through a daunting three day experience and, um, you know, and so on. So I was very stubborn. I was very reticent to admit to myself during the first few years of working with Ibogaine that it wasn't going to be the home remedy that I really wanted to, to find. I really wanted the home remedy that was legal, safe, didn't require professional care, and that could reach a lot of people inexpensively that they can do at home. And that's why I, I let go of Ibogaine three years ago, went to Vietnam and moved on with exploring the possibility of creating a couple of compositions that would do just that, that could reach a million people um, very inexpensively with no need for an EKG or a liver panel or professional care, which I became absolutely uh, necessitates. That And that's a great lead-in to what I'd be curious more about is how you would structure these sessions for these three-day trips and what precautions you think are the, the most important when you do have some, some heart risk, especially people uh, with opiate, opioid issues. Right, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, well, um, the EKG is absolutely imperative because what we're looking for is um, a, 
of prolonged QT, which is the electrical current that runs through the, the heart, um, I began temporarily prolongs the QT. And if it's already prolonged, it could bring the heart into arrhythmia, and that could be dangerous. Um, we also have to know, absolutely comprehensively, we have to know um, how many benzos a day a person's taking, whether they are doing alcohol, um, what kind of supplements they're taking from, whether they're taking grapefruit supplements or any other supplements. It's, it's a very thorough process of screening people for an Ibogaine treatment. And I haven't been active, actively doing treatments for about 12 years now. I've been on the phone with a lot of people since then, mostly talking to addicts, to their wives, girlfriends, you know, parents, about the next step after the Ibogaine. To me, the Ibogaine is 50% of the equation. But invariably, if a person's in their 20s and their 30s and they only do Ibogaine, they're going to relapse. So it's absolutely imperative that they, that, that people are open to doing therapy because two-thirds of the people that call me have an abandonment issue with the same-sex parent, and that issue has to be addressed head-on with a therapist that the person really admires and respects. One of the, the, the interesting things about addicts is that they tend to be a lot more intelligent and a lot more sensitive than the average therapist. So it's very easy for them to manipulate the therapist <clears throat> into thinking that this person is really doing deep work and they're not. But what the Ibogaine does, at least, if it doesn't give people direct insight as to this issue of abandonment, if they don't explore that directly, at least what the Ibogaine does is that it breaks a person down to the point where they're open to doing something that they've never been done before during all of their relapses, which is sit across from someone that they really look up to and admire. Because if therapy is done correctly, it only, it only could, it doesn't need to be a long time. When somebody tells me they're doing therapy for six and a half years, then I know they're not really doing meaningful therapy. Therapy, when it's really done correctly, can take a few months and a person can move on with their lives. So I'm, I'm emphasizing this because I know what Ibogaine can do, but I also know its limitations. And it's really important to follow it up with, with meaningful therapy. Mm -hmm. So that would be some of your first advice to people listening who might be interested in this for themselves or for a loved one, is that this is not a cure, magic cure. It, totally. Absolutely. For, it, it took me 10 years to realize that I was basically talking to the same family. And that is, I realized that there was this pattern going on. And I began to put it to the test by, after the third conversation with someone who was interested possibly in an Ibogaine treatment, I was ask, asking them directly, do you have an abandonment issue with the same-sex parent, in the case of a woman, with your mom, in the case of a guy, with your dad? And two-thirds of them, jaws dropped, and there was silence on the other end. So then after a couple of years, I just began to talk about it 
during the very first time that I would speak with someone, and I would just kind of explain the Ibogaine treatment, because basically people can talk, people can research Ibogaine online and watch 100 videos, um, but it's sort of like giving birth. Nothing, like no one can really explain the experience until you have it yourself. But I focus more on the aftercare because that's where we lose people. Everyone is placed into a pre-addictive state after Ibogaine, whether they're doing three grams of heroin or 300 milligrams of Oxycontin. That's a, that's a piece of cake for Ibogaine. That's a given. But it's the aftercare that is, has been neglected in the Ibogaine world year in and year out. And that's, that's the, the part to focus on. Now, if a person's in their 40s and 50s, and they have a couple of kids that are on their way to college, and they've got a job they really like, and a support system, and a mortgage, there's a, there's a chance that they won't need therapy, that they've already peeled off a couple of layers of the onion, they've gotten desperate enough, and they just really want out. And the only thing that was keeping them from remaining addicted was the agony, the, the fear of going through the agony of withdrawal. But when a person's in their 20s and 30s, 90% of people, if not more, will relapse, thinking that Ibogaine is a magic bullet because they're not willing to do the work that is necessary because it's hard, it's painful to look at that abandonment issue. And so for people who would be interested in this, what would you recommend if they're looking around for a provider, perhaps flying down south to Mexico or to the islands or find an underground provider in the, the States, what would things you would look for in someone to make sure that you're getting someone that's going to, you know, help and work yeah. well with you? Yeah, well, I would, I would recommend they call me because I know everyone in the, the community and I know the people that are out for the money and I know the people that have been doing this caring and dedicated people, both underground and, and in different parts of the, the world for many, many years. Um, and it really depends on the model that a person's looking for um, and, the, and the, the money that they have available um, as to who I would uh, refer them to. If you were put in charge, what would the law be like around Ibogaine? And the the providers. I mean, cause, or if if any, um, you know, what uh -huh. would what would be something with everything you've seen of the good and the bad that would be some kind of sane way society could integrate this plant? Mm -hmm. Well, I I mean, it would be wonderful if there was an ibogaine center in every city in the world. Um, you know, one vision was if there was a a room in every VA hospital. Uh, because it's so profoundly effective for post-traumatic stress. It's so unbelievably effective, like miraculous, overnight karmic retribution when it comes to post-traumatic stress and addiction interruption as well. Um, I, 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 think it, I think it should be available on a, on a, a grand scale, um, done carefully, um, but in a warm, lovely, quiet, almost like a birthing room, you know, where there's medical supervision, but not, um, uh, it, you know, that, not aggressive intervention at all. 
Hmm, that is a nice vision. And and especially the VA hospital, because people hear so much about the addiction part of iboga, but you don't hear as much about the PTSD. And with the amount of trauma uh, now, uh, especially with the wars going on, it would be a wonderful thing. Oh, yeah. That kind of effectiveness. It's, it would be wonderful. Yeah, it would be. Um, and especially because I've, I had one uh, organic chemist friend, and he said that Ibogaine isn't a drug. It's all drugs because from a biochemical perspective, um, it hits on so many different receptors. It's not just the, the kappa mm. opioid receptor. It also hits on the dopamine receptor, so it's a little bit like speed. Um, it also hits mm. on the serotonin receptor, so it has this psychedelic effect. And I've heard it described that you know the 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 interruption of the – addiction is really helpful, but the psychedelic side of what Ibogaine is in those three days of experience can help people see why they want to quit uh, the habits that they're doing or mm -hmm. why they want to forget the, let go of the trauma that, that brought them in. Yeah, yeah. And, and depending upon the individual has all to do, intention is everything, has all to do with the, the depth of the the self-reflective 30, 36 hour uh, stage of the Ibogaine process. Um, I, I see that people in their 40s and 50s tend to go much deeper than a 25 year old guy who's been addicted to heroin for seven years. Sometimes people will come out of an Ibogaine treatment saying, I have no idea. I didn't have any insights, no epiphanies, have no idea what just happened. But I'm not craving. I didn't go through withdrawal, and uh, and I got the world by the balls again. <laughs> but those are the people that will tend to relapse. Um, but you know they they're given this opportunity. They have choice again, and that's that's so cool. That's the cool thing that I always respected about Ibogaine that it gives people choice again. Mm. And what? Do you see any differentiation between who comes out of it with that deeper insight into how it works? Or do you have recommendations for people about how to make sure that they do get the most out of it, the work they can do ahead of time? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, well, when it comes to a psycho-spiritual session, not an addiction interruption session or a therapeutic session where like a person's going into a session for post-traumatic stress or for codependency or food disorder um, or just to go deeper into their process, um, uh, a psycho-spiritual process. Um, yes, there is a, a, an appropriate thing to do beforehand for the 10 days before in preparation. Um, hone in on a couple of intentions, things you want to explore and work through but keep it to just a couple. And if you have a dozen, reflect upon the interconnecting threads that you may see uh, between these dozen different intentions and hone in, simplify the process and go into a, a session with two intentions, things you want to explore and work through. And do that during the course of your waking hours. And you may find that your dreams will change. You may find that after six or seven days, you've resolved one of the intentions and because time kind of collapses and people actually begin the process um, 
sometimes days, sometimes months before they're taking, they're going to take this pilgrimage to do this experience. And so one last question I always like to ask at the end, if perhaps one of the big NGOs gave you a whole pile of money, say half a million dollars for the Richie Ogolnik Center, what would it look like? What would you want to be doing with that money using the, the plants and the things that you know? Uh-huh. Well, one, a couple of things come to mind because there are really, um, <clears throat> there are really um, a lot of Ibogaine centers that are functioning very well in this hemisphere. Um, however, there are um, 1.1 billion people in India. Um, one state of the 26 states located in India, uh, I believe 35% of the college kids in the state in, of Punjab are addicted to heroin, and 75 point something percent of the people in that particular state are addicted to alcohol. Um, India does not have an ibogaine person, an ibogaine provider, and, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's sorely needed. It would be wonderful to open up a few ibogaine centers in India. The other place that's interesting, although I don't know if their internet infrastructure is quite ready, is Cuba. Cuba would be an interesting place to open up an ibogaine center. Um, so I would, uh, I would introduce um, ibogaine to India if I had uh, some money. And um, it doesn't really take a lot of money. I wouldn't need that much money um, because you interest several people and you lease a house. Um, you find a doctor and a nurse and a couple of very good experienced ibogaine providers. And within a month or two, you're in the black because people are already coming for treatments and they're taking care of the, the expenses. And it's not the usual startup. It's not, uh, you know, money is not needed for a usual startup. So, so that's what I would consider in the Ibogaine world. Ibogaine. I had that much money. That's a great answer. I wasn't expecting that. That's a great one. Um, well, Richie, I just want to say thank you so much, not only for the conversation day, but for all these years of work you put into getting this plant medicine out there. And thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>